Welcome to the Progress Your Health podcast with your hosts, Dr. Robert Mackey and Dr. Valerie Davidson, a husband and wife team who specialize in bioidentical hormone replacement therapy and functional medicine. They're here to help you lose weight, balance hormones, and age gracefully. It's their mission to motivate, educate, and empower you to take your health to the next level. And now your hosts, hormone experts, Dr. Mackey and Dr. Davidson. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Progress Health Podcast. I'm Dr. Mackey. And I'm Dr. Davidson. Uh, so how are you doing this morning? Doing great. How are you doing this morning? Uh, not too bad. Uh, not too bad. It's been a little while since uh, I, there's been a couple that came out right before this one. Those were ones we already had pre-recorded from a little while ago. So this one is like the newest one that we've done in a little while. Uh, so does it feel does it feel strange sitting down? It does feel strange. I think, yeah, by the time you listen to this one, we have three in our hopper. So three will have already come out. But those three, I think the last one we did was in January. And it's right now... July. So we haven't done a podcast in six months. Yeah. Uh, yesterday, was six months? yesterday was July 4th. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, what'd you think of the fireworks? Oh, I was, um, kind of, I don't like fireworks. <laughs> I don't like yeah. Yeah. You know, fireworks. <laughs> so it wasn't, you know, the na- yeah. People in the neighborhood doing their firework thing. I, all the more, at least they were done by 10. So I'm, that's no problem, but <laughs> yeah, there was quite a bit. I was really actually surprised at how many, uh, how many people were lighting off fireworks. Uh, it was sort of uh, a little shocking to say the least. I think it was the same people, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there's a few. Uh, you could tell like there was some on that side and some on that side, but uh, there was there was quite a bit. Uh, anyway, so uh, let's. Uh, we have a bunch of questions as always. Um, you know, there's some good ones that we you know, kind of handpicked a little bit. Uh, you know, we 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 try to get as to uh, to as many of them as we can. Uh, that's easier said than done. Uh, we have some ideas in the future about how we can maybe facilitate more of those, but you know it, it does get very challenging. We we still appreciate people reaching out uh, and and sending in their questions. Uh, we're gonna uh, we're gonna try to do maybe more of them. Uh, you know, trying is uh, kind of a, a selective term, just because they are. You know, we have lots to do, and but yet it gives us a tremendous amount of content to you know to talk about on the podcast. And if you think somebody's asking a question, there's so many other people out there that probably have the same question. So that's why I really do appreciate everybody sending in their questions. We might not get to them as quickly as possible. Hence the last podcast was in January, but, um, you know, I do appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, we, uh, uh, so when this web, when this, uh, when this episode is out, um, we just had launched, um, actually technically yesterday. Uh, so July 4th, our website, our new website went, went live for the second time. We ran into a problem with the podcast feed, a um, bunch of technical stuff that you and I barely know enough about to be dangerous. We know enough to be dangerous. Uh, so by the time you're, if you're listening to this one, then the new website is out. I think it turned out pretty good. What do you think of the new one? Oh yeah. I mean, like we've always said, things always take a little longer than you expect, but seeing the finished, you know, the finished work on that website. I think it's really great. We have an opt-in page on there. We have an ask the doctor question, which is kind of what we're doing here is to make it easier for people to ask questions. You know, normally somebody will read, read a blog or they'll listen to a podcast and they'll have a question and they'll write a question, you know, in response to that particular blog or that particular podcast. We actually have now where you can click on a link on the website called Ask the Doctor so we can sort of collect all of the questions in one spot. It just makes it easier to manage. And then, like I said, 
we can get the more questions, the better, because it helps so many other people. Yeah. And honestly, the reason why we started the podcast in the first place, uh, you know, besides me getting to talk to you every, every time we do this, which is really fun. I know a lot of podcasts have guest interviews, but I'd rather, you know, to be honest, I'd rather just talk to you anyways. Me too. Um, you know, so, but because we're answering specific questions, these kind, the answers to these questions are very difficult to find, right? You can't, you can Google all you want and really never find the answers we provide, which is why we provide those answers, because we know that those answers are really hard. The questions are very specific about um, almost all of them are in some way, shape or form relating to hormone replacement. And that information is just not you know, you just can't go on mayoclinic.com or webmd.com and get those kind of answers. Um, for one, conventionally, hormone replacement is done a particular way that we don't really, uh, you know, do. Uh, so we know that, you know, that was sort of the the idea where this came from originally anyways, is, you know, just keep answering those questions because we do know that those answers are, are challenging to, you know, to figure out. Because with hormone replacement, everybody is so different. It's not one size fits all. Here, you take this, you take this, you take this. Everybody has different responses. They also have different goals and what they want the hormone replacement to do for them. So that's where I, I really do, like I said, appreciate the questions. And then just, I mean, we've been practicing with female hormones and hormone replacement for 20 years, you know, since 2000, you 2003, me 2004, technically. And um, so we've seen a lot. So I do... Um, I do think, actually, I think this question we're going to talk about might be kind of, kind of interesting. Yeah. Why don't you go ahead and read it? Okay. So this is from Kathy and of course we change everybody's names for privacy, but we called her Kathy. It was from a a blog that we did about how does bioidentical progesterone help? So her question is, hi, Dr. Davidson. My question to you is what do you suggest if a woman on biased and cannot take Prometrium because it has the opposite effect and gives her anxiety. So she's unbiased, uh, you know, which has an estradiol and estriol, probably a cream that she takes as her estrogen replacement. And then Prometrium is another form of quote unquote progesterone that she's taking. But it, when she says it has the opposite effect, that sounds like the progest- the Prometrium is giving her anxiety. It says, yes, she has a uterus. Yes, she is unbiased, but what if cream, progesterone cream, is her only option? Yeah, uh, I know uh, you and I both know how we would answer that one, but uh, why don't we kind of you know just dive in? Uh, give me your uh, your two your two cents worth. Well, maybe um, back up a little bit and just kind of like I said, explain. So she's unbiased. So obviously, this is a menopausal female. So her estrogen and progesterone are both low, whether she's had her ovaries out or her ovarian function has reduced, as naturally it does. 51 and a half being the average age. So biased is a combination of estradiol and estriol. That's why they call it biased. And we make technically three estrogens, estrone, um, estradiol, and estriol. There's a fourth one too that's only made in utero that I think another doctor that I love counts too, but really we only make three estrogens. And I guess they just came out with a new birth control using that. uh, I think it's actually like a fetal form of estrogen. They're making a birth control out of that one. I can't, I don't, honestly, we just heard that one a couple of weeks ago and I don't remember what it is either. I'll have to, but when we find more information, um, we'll research it. But like I said, technically the, the three estrogens, estrone E1, estradiol E2, and estriol E3. Estradiol is the strongest form of estrogen. So we have usually with a bias, there's a small amount of estradiol with a larger amount of estriol E3 because that's um, 
much more gentle. It doesn't have quite the strength that the estradiol does, but doing them together, you can kind of get the best of both worlds. So she's definitely on that. And she does have a uterus. So when you think about a woman taking estrogen, because estrogen loves to grow that endometrial lining, that it will, you want to take some form of progesterone to prevent that lining from getting thick. And usually the oral form has a much better effect on that endometrial lining from the thickening than a cream form does. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, kind of one of our rules, right? Uh, one uh, Rule number one in hormone replacement, you never give, a, like in this context, you never give a woman unopposed estrogen, right? She can't take estrogen by her, by itself. Uh, now, that happens sometimes conventionally when they've had a hysterectomy, right? If they've had their uterus removed, it is sort of seen as being okay of giving them estrogen only. Uh, we don't really agree with that necessarily either. Uh, but in this context, you're right. We kind of, sh- you know, shy away from using cream if they're taking some kind of bias. Now, uh, with the bias, one thing that she didn't put down though is what is her bias dose, right? The dosing of the bias, you know, how much estradiol, how much estriol, that's what bias is made from, estradiol and estriol, how much of um, either of those hormones are actually in, in the prescription. Just because she's taking it, even the ratio doesn't really matter. The ratio will dictate how much of both of those hormones, um, but that sort of is a poignant, uh, you know, uh, fact or information that would be relevant to, you know, sort of, you know, further answer that question. Yeah, exactly. You know, I love it. So when you're sending in questions, please give us all the information you can. I love all the data, all the numbers, even if you don't even know what your bias dose is. So I'm sure Kathy is looking at her bias cream and like, I have no idea what these numbers and these letters mean. It's just write them out. I know exactly what they mean. Write it out, you know, P, Q, whatnot, dollar sign, hashtag, any of that stuff, I can figure it out. So it is important. I would love, love to have her dose of biased, but it is interesting because she is taking Prometrium, which we're going to go into what Prometrium exactly is, and it's giving her anxiety. So Prometrium or any kind of progesterone that you're taking as part of your bioidentical hormone replacement protocol, you want to take the progesterone at night because like she said, it has the opposite effect and gives her anxiety. So she must be taking it at night and then getting some anxiety. Yeah, right. Now that could be based on, you know, where she is in life. That could just be part of that anyways, but I'm assuming she's taking it for a little while and she's noticing the, you know, you know, the correlation between taking it and an increase in anxiety as she's trying to get ready for bed, Uh, which is, you know, something we see quite often with Prometrium, to be honest. I mean, it's one of those reasons that some women just can't handle Prometrium because of that instant release nature. Yeah, exactly. Like Dr. Mackey said is Prometrium is typically actually always, an instant release progesterone. So as soon as you take that, it goes right into your bloodstream. So sometimes you'll see that instant release, it can trigger for some reason the cortisol, it can maybe even that relaxing effect that it's supposed to have can trigger more, an like she's saying, an opposite effect of a fight or flight or a sympathetic nervous response. One other kind of interesting thing about Prometrium is it's, you know, because it's mass produced, it's a it's typically you know, gotten at a big box pharmacy is oftentimes it doesn't really have the best fillers, binders, and excipients. So where Kathy might be thinking she's having a reaction to the progesterone component, she's really having a reaction to some filler binder excipient that's put in there. And I've seen that a lot. I've seen rashes from fillers and excipients. I've seen, um, you know, anxiety. I've seen digestive issues, diarrhea. So you, people can be sensitive to these fillers, some permetriums will typically actually have peanut oil in it as part of its filler. And anybody that has, you know, a nut allergy 
or even sensitive to nuts or think they're sensitive to nuts or one time was sensitive to a nut or a peanut, don't take Prometrium. You know, I uh, you know, good uh, a question. You know why they use peanut oil? You know, I used to know that somewhere in my brain, I could probably fish it out. <laughs> but I remember, you know, knowing about that. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, why, from, why from isn't an, it coming from, out from an allergenicity yeah. perspective? It why just would they do that? It doesn't seem like a good idea. And I think some of them don't. And some typically originally Prometrium always had the peanut oil. I think some of them now they do make without the peanut oil, but they have to use some other filler binder and excipient. So I'm thinking for her, because I have seen women get the anxiety with progesterone. I'm thinking the Prometrium is either a, the instant release is the issue or a filler excipient or binder in there is the issue or the peanut oil. If that one she's taking is the issue. Yeah. Uh, we've seen that quite a few times, more than likely the instant release nature. So this is, you know, this is why we prefer sustained release progesterone to sort of uh, avoid that problem. Yeah. The sustained release is exactly as it sounds, as you take it, instead of it coming out in a huge bolus into your system, right away it comes out very softly and gently throughout the night. So that's a nice way to help somebody stay asleep. So if you have that progesterone coming, you know, being sustained really sustained released throughout your system all night long, that can help a woman stay asleep, which is you know, one of the one of the menopausal <laughs> flags or one of the biggest symptoms is the ability to stay asleep. Yeah, right. I mean, that's, you know, hot flashes, night sweats, sleeping. That's, you know, what they're all kind of miserable with uh, because the night sweats are happening at night. They can't sleep. And it's just like this vicious cycle that happens night after night. Uh, so uh, so she just needs to find uh, either her doctor, you know, finds a, I'm sure there's a compounding pharmacy close by. Doctor needs to call it in instead of a big box pharmacy, call it into a compounding pharmacy and see if there's any difference. Uh, dosing wise, I know Prometrium comes in one and 200, uh, which we've talked about many different times in the past. Uh, what would you start at one of those same dosages or would you do something different? Usually probably at a hundred. You don't, if somebody has a uterus and no matter what kind of dose they're taking as the biased, if there's an estradiol component to their hormone replacement, you really don't want to go under 100 milligrams of progesterone. 100 milligrams is, we call it a size medium. It's, per, you know, it's a good dose to kind of protect that endometrial lining, but it's not too high to make somebody feel too relaxed because, hey, progesterone is very relaxing. It has an effect on the GABA and the GABA receptors. It helps reduce down cortisol. So like, like um, Kathy's saying, she's saying, um, is having the opposite effect. It's giving her anxiety where progesterone is typically supposed to make you feel much more relaxed. So hundred milligrams is like I said, a size medium. That's a good starting dose. Sometimes I go a little higher. Everybody has a different kind of patient base. I notice with a lot of my patients, I don't usually go over 200 because then it's almost like too much of a sedative for them. So, um, you know, usually between 100 and 200, one little side note that I'd love to know your, um, your opinion on is sometimes, let's say, Kathy's like, you know, I don't think it's a filler or the binder. Uh, Prometrium is covered by my insurance, and that compounding one isn't, so, you know, I can't afford to go to the compounding one, which, you know, is a whole other story in itself. Sometimes I've had patients um, actually take it, even though it's an instant release, take it earlier in the evening, where taking it right before bed might be somehow stimulating that fight-or-flight sympathetic response, where if she took it more at, like, you know, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, not where she's out and about, but you know, a little earlier she's at home. I've seen a little bit of better reactions with that too. Have you? Uh, well, um, yeah, not really. Uh, I'm a little bit just because I, I think in, I don't know too many that actually that I prescribe the per- permetrium actually for, yeah. mm-hmm. um, just, 
by default, just the uh, sustained release just becomes the easier option. There's been a few here and there, but you know, not that many. Uh, so I haven't, you know, really seen it, but I have seen women, you know, some women, whether it's, uh, and this is the, you know, kind of the, the unfortunate part that some women, they can't tolerate either one of them, right? They can't tolerate, uh, the instant release or the sustained release. What do you do in that situation? They need estrogen because they're having hot flashes and they're miserable, but they can't tolerate any oral progesterone. What do you do in that situation? Honestly, I have, I have run into that, but I haven't had, I've usually been able to figure out a way that we can find it tolerable, whether it's changing the fillers, binders, and excipients that the compounding pharmacy uses, because they can make it any way you could possibly want it to, changing up the dosage, changing up the timing that they're taking it. I really would honestly just say, well, then we can't do the biased. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, it's sometimes it has to be that definitive. You have to do one versus the other using cream with estrogen. Now, what about uh, what about the dosing of either the biased and or the progesterone cream? Is there any leeway there if you use a lower amount of est- uh, uh, of biased with a higher amount of progesterone cream? Is that possible? I really don't. If there's any kind of estradiol in that, even if it's the smallest amount, it's still going to over time cause some thickening, whether it's six months or six years, it's, it's going to do it. I mean, if you had to, you would probably, you know, which we do anyway, whether they're taking oral progesterone or not is, is you would have to do a transvaginal ultrasound every so often, just to make sure that the lining of the uterus isn't thickening up. One way, of course, of the patient or the human knowing that they'd be like, oh, I got a period or, oh, I'm spotting every time I wipe, then you know that lining is getting too thick. But even if they're not having any spotting, you still want to probably do a transvaginal ultrasound just to check out that it's the lining isn't thickening and just hanging out so, in the uterus. So let's, let's say she was new, uh, right? We're managing uh, someone like this. Uh, so you do one every six months uh, to start and then, uh, see what happens if there's any thickening or not, and then, uh, spread them out from there or still do it every six months. I, you know, honestly, if they want to take some kind of estrogen, we can figure out a way for them to take progesterone. There is, there is a way, you know, there is a way I've even had women, they take it in the afternoon and they're fine rather than taking it at night. I know it's supposed to be relaxing. You certainly don't want it taken in the morning because you got to you know, get to work or get doing things, but everybody is so different. We really have to just kind of work together. That's why it's so individualized. Like, Hey, let's, you know, co-collaborate here and find the best way for you to be able to tolerate it. Even if it's 50 milligrams of progesterone taken twice a day, sometimes you can do it. You can do a transvaginal progesterone insert. Those are really messy. Those really those get real annoying after a while. That would that would help probably, you know, it ha- it does help to keep that lining thin because it's so close to the uterus and that progesterone can really affect it as opposed to taking a cream and putting it on your arms and thighs. It's just, even if you did 400 milligrams of progesterone cream, it still probably wouldn't have the effect on the uterus like an oral or the messy transvaginal. Yeah, right. Uh, what about a what about a trochee? A difference between oral and a trochee? Any difference there? You know, trochees still tend to end up being a little bit more oral, so you got to be careful with those in any case, with, especially if it's some kind of estrogen, just because estrogen, you really won't, don't want to take it too much orally unless you're really looking at those liver enzymes and the absorption because it does have such a burden on the liver and the absorption orally isn't great. So usually with a trochee, you have to say, you know, you've do not chew, do not swallow, just let it sit there for 20 minutes, 
even if it's you know uncomfortable. So, may, so, you so know, technically, for those that don't know, a trochee is supposed to be sublingual, yes. quote unquote, right? So you put it. That's why you said you don't chew it, you don't swallow it. You're supposed to hold it on your tongue for 20 minutes, or inside of your cheek, and yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, you could do that with progesterone, and it may it may help. But it's, you know, like I said, there's something that's triggering her fight or flight reaction, that sympathetic nervous system that sometimes will even on the back end, which I know you do this too, is let's work on why it's triggering that sympathetic nervous system, not because she's allergic to anything or any fillers or binders, but why there has to be something with the adrenals because the adrenals are our fight or flight organs that, you know, in our back, they sit above our kidneys, is possibly looking into and treating and working on the adrenals because that's really where the origin is coming from, why that progesterone is causing the anxiety. Do you think there's any conversion that happens? Uh, you know, this has come up a couple of times that when you take oral progesterone that it gets turned into or converted into cortisol. I you know, I know that all hormones, as I call them, are promiscuous. They can turn into anything and they can stimulate anybody's receptor. A testosterone can stimulate an estradiol receptor, vice versa, you know, testosterone can aromatize and turn into estradiol if there's too much of it around or you know other things. So really hormones can do a lot of wonky things. So you're right, checking on that, but that would be um, one of those things where you, you know, you check the progesterone levels, you check the cortisol levels. That, and that's why, you know, we do a, a lot of testing. Not that people are getting tested all the time, but you really, every few months, we do some testing so we can make sure that those hormones are doing what we want them to do in the body as opposed to somebody's subjective information on how they're feeling. Yes. And we just combine the subjective with the objective, having, using some of those numbers and the, uh, the reference ranges to help guide some of those decisions. And in a situation like this, you know, potentially figure out why something's happening. Because if you look at those, you know, the different hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, cortisol, they're all classified as steroid hormones, right? So they all have, uh, and what makes them a steroid is they have what they call a, is it called a cholesterol backbone. They're, they're literally made from cholesterol. Um, another reason why cholesterol is an important molecule in the body, um, just in general. Uh, so potentially, you know, I know that estrogen and testosterone are very similar in chemical structure. Uh, progesterone and cortisol are fairly, uh, you know, uh, um, similar in chemical structure. Um, you know, we should, uh, you know, I'm going to write, make a note of that to see if there is any, because uh, it's very common for uh, it, estrogen and testosterone to aromatize back and forth. Okay, men go from testosterone to estrogen. Women go from estrogen to testosterone. D uh, does uh, and this is a question that I'm proposing not to answer right now, but just for us to look into, because um, I I should know the answer, but I really don't off the top of my head. But it's a you know a interesting thing to think about. Is there an, uh, and it's probably not even aromatization because it's uh, aromatization is based on the aromatase enzyme that uh, fosters the conversion from estrogen to testosterone. Is there a similar enzyme that fosters the same conversion to progesterone to cortisol, possibly? I'll have, you know, I want to say yes, because I know that there's that hydroxy, um, one, one hydroxy progesterone that you want to check because if that's elevated, that's not being converted into progesterone because that means the androgens are going too high. There's a whole map of what the hormones do. So definitely, um, and I've got, actually, I've got it in the office, so I've got a hard copy paper. Yeah, yeah. The, I'm like still the, kind of a hard copy kind of girl. Yeah, the, the steroid. Well, sometimes those steroid, steroid cascades, I mean, you know, we see them all the time. They come up, in, especially when you're dealing with hormones, there's always the steroid cascade. And, and it's interesting just to see what it looks like and how things 
uh, kind of go down the, 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 literally the, the, the cascade pregnenolone up at the top. And one of the things that we test for, uh, and often recommend, uh, and often recommend, uh, there's another one we're going to do soon. Uh, another question that just came in was someone having a really elevated level of pregnenolone. Mm-hmm. So it'll be up on an upcoming episode that we'll talk about. Um, that one, you know, seems sort of interesting. The, the person that reached out with the question is a little freaked out, you know, you look online and it, you know, oh. you know that, that's everything why, online can freak you out. Yeah, right. That's, <laughs> if you, you go know, down the right rabbit hole. That's why you know we, we do these uh, questions because you look on Google to try to find an answer, and it's either gloom and doom, and you're going to die like next week, uh, or you just don't have any. Con- there's no context to be able to f- specifically answer those types of questions. So, uh, you know, I mean, we should know that. And I off it's come up a couple of times. Not that. Like you said, most of the time we're able to figure it out and they're able to tolerate the progesterone somehow, some way. Uh, now, the reason why that's important is with uh, uh, we're talking kind of two basic things here. Static dosing, same dose every day. Bleeding of any sort is not an option. Right? The other uh, idea is rhythmic dosing, uh, which you know, cycling the hormones over the course of a 28-day cycle, that actually encourages uh, bleeding, um, uh, literally have reinitiating the period, uh, a little confusing because they're completely fundamentally different approaches. But in that one, in the rhythmic dosing where you're cycling the hormones, uh, you're actually using a cream in that context because you want them to have a period versus static dosing where you don't. Oh yes. The rhythmic dosing is like apples and oranges to the static dosing. It just, like I said earlier, it depends on what your hormonal goals are, but you're right with the cycling, you want to have a period. But it's recreating the actual hormonal, because um, when you're a menstruating female, your hormones are different from day two to day four to day 12 to day 21 to day 28. They're always changing. So when you're doing that rhythmic dosing, you're recreating that female natural rhythmic ovarian cycle so that they are supposed to have a period on day 28 or day technically day one, and as opposed to not having one. So, but when you're doing that static dose where they're getting the same dose every day of the bias, same dose every day of their progesterone is then you don't want to have any bleeding because then that's not safe. But with the rhythmic dosing, as long as you're getting that bleeding, I think the rhythmic dosing is a, is a beautiful way to do hormones. Honestly, but they both are. It just depends on the patient. Yeah. Really. Some, some women, you know, they're in their mid fifties. They don't want a period again. They're like, nope, no, I'm not interested. I get okay, it. Mm-hmm. Then static dosing is our option. But the the dosing levels between the two you have a certain for women that have a uterus there's a certain dosing limit you can get to on the static dosing that you can exceed on the rhythmic dosing uh, and the rhythmic dosing you know just to be you know perfectly honest it's a very obscure kind of a approach that most people are not really uh, aware of or understand or how to manage that uh, the fact that they're having a, a, a regular monthly period is the part that actually makes it safe um, that's the part that sort of wigs everybody out but but you're right there's just two completely different philosophies which one would be the best uh, which approach would be the best uh, fit for that particular patient uh, you know so sometimes it becomes a default like in a situation like this because you can't like you said if you can't tolerate the progesterone, then the biased is not really an option, right? Which is, you know, uh, sort of a, 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 a not a great conclusion to come to if a, if a woman is just miserable dealing with all the symptoms that are happening in her, you know, uh, we've talked to a lot of them over the years, you know, it can be really from a day-to-day functioning standpoint, they got to take care of the kids, they got to go to work, they got to do all these things. Uh, and now their body is just, you know, sort of, you know, rebelling a little bit and they can't really cope that well, you know, even just doing normal everyday things. 
One thing, just to spin another wrench on this, is like you said, getting that dose on that biased for Kathy would be important, and also getting how she how she doses it. Because, um, in fact, that's why I kind of ring a little light bulb. I was writing a blog post yesterday, kind of about menopause and menopausal symptoms. I was talking well, about what's the name of that one? Oh yeah, <laughs> what's the name of that one? It's called um, oh, menopause anger toward husbands. Yeah. Now I didn't make up that that line. <laughs> we have a online platform that we pay for that helps us kind of do keyword research and SEO stuff, which really is way over my head. But I'm always looking for um, things with high, co- no, low competition, but high search volume, so I can see what people want to hear about, and also I don't get lost in the minutia of everybody else writing about it. So low competition, high search volume, and believe it or not, uh, menopause anger at husbands had really high search volume. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, well, I'm, which I that, get it, I get it, but um, yeah. That's why I'm asking you the question because I thought it was pretty funny. And that I, one's coming out. And I talked to a lot of women, and uh, they, uh, you know, they sort of uh, it becomes a little bit of a joke, you know, because we snicker about you know their you know idiot husbands, and they're just mad at them all the time for the dumb things they do. Um, but some of it is now to be fair, some of it is hormonally driven. That is that is you know that is true. Men sort of I think use that. Uh, you know, to their advantage sometimes. They're like, oh, it's your hormones. You're acting crazy. Eh, you know, most of the time it's the husband's fault, right? They did something that, uh, you know, they're just frustrating and irritating. You know, we're just big kids sometimes. Uh, so it ends up becoming kind of a laughing point that, you know, they want to, you know, they love their husbands to death, of course, but they want to strangle them. I know you want to strangle me half the time. Never. You're the sweetest, nicest. Oh, you say that because we're recording this right now, but <laughs> off the podcast, it's a little bit of a different story. Well, anyway, that blog post will be coming out soon, but I was writing some of my experiences with working with women and their menopausal symptoms. And one thing that kind of triggers me a little bit looking at Kathy's information here is the anxiety might not be coming from the progesterone. I've had lots of women when they describe their hot flashes, they're, you know, people always think, oh, I know what a hot flash is, but unless you've had one, you really don't know what a hot flash is because everybody responds or has a different description on how their hot flashes actually are. Some women, they're just hot and they're just hot. Other women, they get it like it's an inferno. I have a lot of women that actually misinterpret a panic attack or an anxiety attack because it's actually a hot flash. So I'm thinking it would be interesting to talk to Kathy about this. Biased, you know, these bioidentical hormones are so beautiful. They're so gentle, but they really don't have a very long lifespan in the body. So when you're doing a bias, an estriol and estradiol bioidentical replacement cream, you put that on in the morning by 10 o'clock at night, it's out of your system. Mm-hmm. And a lot, I know a lot of people, they'll come to me and they'll be like, oh yeah, I only take it once, once a day. And I'm like, are you having hot flashes all night? Yeah, I get night sweats. Yeah. It could be that she might be applying her bias just once a day. She takes her prometrium that night. And she thinks, you know, she's getting, you know, she's getting these kind of hot flashes, which like I said, I have a lot of women, they didn't know that their anxiety attacks were really a hot flash. Yeah. I mean, it, it, uh, there's a, a lot of things. Uh, the, the, I think the half-life of estrogen is technically like, t- you know, a little less than 12 hours. So whatever you apply in the morning is going to you know get you through the day and whatever you apply in the evening, like you said, it's going to help or it's going to assist you at night. Uh, now you know, I, we manipulate that quite a bit depending on the patient. If they're not having anything during the day, we, you know, have them back, um, you know, backload it. They can take more of it at night if they have to, without even having to raise the dosage. Right. So there's a lot of ways you can manipulate that, but our default is always to have them take it twice a day. 
So that's what I'm thinking. You know, that could be the issue here with Kathy, that it's not her prometrium that's giving her anxiety. It's just her estrogen has run out and she's waking up with night sweats or hot flashes. And, and you know, you know, when that estrogen drops, it's not menopause. Like I said, I there's so many symptoms other than anger towards husbands and hot flashes and night sweats. <laughs> Is there's so, so many other, you know, other symptoms. When estrogen drops, sometimes, you know, you get blue. Sometimes you worry like women will say i've never been a worry wart and then they hit menopause and they're worrying about things that don't they can't even control and probably aren't going to happen like the sky is falling the sky is not going to fall but they worry about it because that estrogen has something to do with how they're feeling so and i know a lot of women and i'll say this for myself too if you you know with our hormones sometimes we do wake up in the middle of the night and all of a sudden it's like you think about everything that's going to happen tomorrow everything that could go wrong that's going to happen tomorrow, everything that could go wrong in the next week, that then you're having this anxiety when really maybe, you know, it's it's just because of a lack of estrogen. Yeah. I mean, that, 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 uh, type of, uh, you know, kind of, um, what I call that, like a thought loop almost like you're just worry, worry, you know, one worry thought turns into another one. It turns into another one. And pretty soon it just sort of repeats itself. Uh, that, that tends to show up usually kind of in that perimenopausal to menopausal transition. It's always at like two 30 in the morning, which everyone's my beautiful, sweet, lovely husband is in a coma next to me and I'm like wide awake thinking about, oh, should I get the car? check my tires? Did, did the dogs get vaccinated? Oh, maybe I should check the mail. I forgot to. Did I leave it open? You know, you just think these weird thoughts. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, obviously there's some something hormonally that is driving the emotion and the and the and the thought pattern, even some of the behavior, right? That this is the even still in 2023, this is where uh, the the reality of what hormones or what effect the hormones have on the body, uh, emotionally, physically, mentally, you know, all those things. Uh, and we're, we're, I mean, you and I are kind of immersed in that all the time. So we sort of understand that, you know, to some extent, but even we don't, you know, maybe you do, cause you're a woman yourself. You, know, you just turned 50, by the way. You know? So <laughs> Birthday to me. Uh, uh, you're not technically in menopause yet. You, you, you act like you are sometimes. I'm, 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 I'm entering it. Yeah, yeah. I'm gliding gracefully. Gracefully. <laughs> I have lots of tools to help me. Yeah, yeah. Gracefully. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, but we, you know, we sort of at least have an idea uh, and I'm saying this as a stupid man, not even as a, you know, a doctor or a professional that deals with hormones all the time. Even I have struggle with understanding and on the effect that these hormones have on how we look and feel and behave and our emotional stability. Uh, it's sort of, uh, you know, it's sort of just not really ever discussed or talked about. Um, I had a patient the other day that I talked to and she's doing rhythmic dosing. Uh, came back with a little issue on her. She had to do a transvaginal ultrasound because she's doing rhythmic dosing, struggling getting a period. Came back that there's a polyp. Uh, not great news, but not really that big of a deal. Uh, of course, we uh, go to great lengths to protect a woman's uterus, right? That's our number one job is to protect the uterus. Uh, why? Because there is a, you know, there is a uterine cancer risk using hormone replacement. That's why they need to be managed. You cannot be buying them on Amazon. Uh, you know, they need they need to come from a. Uh, they are a prescription. They need to come from a pharmacy, um, and they need to be managed properly. So the you know, uh, the safety of the patient is kind of at the top of the priority list. Would you agree with that? Oh, 
Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's an obvious mm-hmm. statement. Uh, you know, however, she told me that, which I thought was pretty profound, that um, she suffered, uh, you know, her whole life really with a major depressive disorder uh, and has never, she's been on rhythmic dosing now, probably approaching two years, um, give or take. Uh, and her mood has never been, she's in her mid fifties right now, working a lot. She's got a lot of responsibility or she has an elderly mom. Uh, she's taking care of the, uh, grandkids over the course of the week. She travels all the time. She has a, uh, you know, a, um, sort of a, a sales slash executive position. So it forces her to go to trade shows and she's traveling all over the country to meet with clients and lots of responsibility to say the least. Uh, and she said that her mood has never been better from a depression standpoint. Uh, she's never been better than it has been since being on the, uh, on the hormone replacement. Uh, so that right there, she's like, I don't want to change it, you know, cause we were talking about, uh, this issue that came up in her ultrasound. She goes, uh, I feel great. Uh, you know, um, we'll, we'll, uh, if I have to do an ultrasound every so often, we'll, we'll do whatever we got to do. But it was just a good reminder for me to understand that these hormones are having a, a major impact of keeping her functional. Uh, and granted, her stress has never been really higher. She, she'd even sort of admitted that too. Stress is really, you know, really kind of maxed out, but she's handling it all well. She's taken it all in stride. Uh, she's, uh, you know, so like I said, even sometimes as the, as the prescriber or as the, you know, person not taking the hormones, you know, it's, uh, it's sort of important to understand what kind of uh, impact they actually have, as opposed to just getting rid of hot flashes and night sweats. It kind of goes, it can go a little deeper than that sometimes. Oh yeah, exactly. There's way more symptoms than hot flashes and night sweats, which can be, you know, terrible for sleep and for a lot of things, but there's so many other, but that's a really beautiful story. That's really wonderful to hear. Cause I know, you know, anxiety and depression are like the, which just like with Kathy here, anxiety is like the worst feeling in the world. Cause you're I'd rather, sprain my ankle or something than having, you know, anxiety there. So it's amazing what those hormones can do. And when you're doing that rhythmic dosing, they really are doing a good amount of estradiol. Like it's, it's a good amount. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's <laughs> what I'm recreating saying. Recreating that natural cycle that you would have when you're 28, 29. Yeah. Right. And that's the part that freaks everybody out. You start using those higher doses, which it creates a certain, a certain response in the woman, but you know, getting people to, you know, the practitioner to even sort of comprehend that is sort of the challenge sometimes because you have to understand the overall philosophy of why this is a good idea. Uh, and from an anti-aging perspective, right, you know, you're, you know, literally your you know, longevity and anti-aging is obviously a very popular thing right now. Uh, from that standpoint, you know, if you think, if we think about what happens as we get older, the hormones disappear and we start to, you know, kind of accelerate the deterioration, you know, diabetes, heart disease, Alzheimer's, cancer, lack of muscle mass, you know, all these things are contributing basically once a woman goes into menopause. Now, it's not supposed to happen as much for men, as you know, right? Men are supposed to continuously make testosterone, but we we both know, and I think everyone realizes, especially with all the you know, environmental issues we have, plastics and phthalates and all these things that get talked about all over, all over line, um, that testosterone levels are, you know, declining. Uh, I think for, you know, some of the same reasons, you know, stress level, that's the other thing that, you know, for Kathy too, it'd be interesting to know what, not with too much detail, right, you know, to share on a podcast. I mean, it is, you know, you know, it is private, so no one knows, but what is her stress level that, you know, maybe there's something circumstantial that is contributing to some of that anxiety uh, from a cortisol standpoint, right? Everyone has this uh, low cortisol output in the morning when we're supposed to be awake and ready to go. And we have, uh, you know, what they call that proverbial flip curve where we have too much at night and then now you're having trouble sleeping, you know? Yeah. So maybe it's something just a, 
you know, maybe exacerbated by the uh, progesterone, maybe nothing to do with the progesterone. Who knows? Yeah, working on those adrenals and like you said, that sympathetic nervous system, like getting more information. That's why, like we said earlier in this podcast, you know, hormones aren't a cookie cutter. Here, take this patch and go on your way. It's not like that. You want to see, okay, you know, what kind of life, environmental life does this person have right now? You know, what is their personal and family history? What are their goals? You know, some women want like your patient, which is, so beautiful that she, you know, she really wanted her mood to be better. You know, depressive disorder is is, is scary. Well, I think that was a incidental, uh, that wasn't really what we were thinking in the first place. So she didn't really divulge that to you till recently. Oh, well, uh, I I was aware that it's been part of her history, but we didn't set out to, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. to prescribe that with the goal that it was going to fix that. It was like sort of, Sort of like a, you know, sort of like a, a happy accident that we did it for one reason, but it actually turned out to be better in another reason. Well, you and I both know patients that we give the hormones to that their moods do get better. I mean, I've had husbands and wives and partners and, you know, and spouses come in together so they could talk about how their moods are and how they're behaving. So we know that it has a, a big impact on that. So I think what I was saying was, you know, these these hormones have to be individualized where the rhythmic dosing worked wonderfully for your patient. And I'm really glad you didn't change your dose because uterine polyps are always benign. Uterine polyps are not cancer. They're not fibroids. They're they're just like a little piece of jello of that lining that's sticking up with a stalk. So it might've been there in dormancy even before the hormones because they lay flat and then they kind of stick up when the lining gets thicker. So it's, and they even run in families. They run in my family, uterine polyps. So I'm glad that you, that didn't sway you from changing, you know, your course of action because you knew that was safe. Well, like I said, we don't like the, um, when we get a transvaginal ultrasound report, we don't like to see um, abnormalities in the uterus, but you're right. You know, it's not really that big of a deal, but she was pretty adamant about it. Like she goes, uh, you know, I, I've never felt this good uh, emotionally, uh, mood wise in a very long time. Uh, I mean, you know, she's on some antidepressants. She's on a couple of different things. She's been on a bunch in the past, uh, and she's always kind of cycled in and out. Uh, and, uh, she's just been like a rock ever since. And so she was more of the one that was, um, a little bit staunch, like, Nope, we're staying right here. This is, I feel, I feel good. She's got lots to deal with. Um, that's really where some of that rhythmic dosing kind of comes into place because it gives them that, not that this really actually happens, but you know, from an anxiety perspective, it gives them back that um, that hormonal buffer to the complicated worlds. You know, like when we're twenty five, we can handle lots of things, right? When we're forty five, fifty five, sixty five. Um, that's where some of that nervousness comes from because I think literally some of those hormones are disappearing and now uh, things are just kind of, you know, left to run amok, you know, hormonally. Uh, you know, I mean, think of a, when I was a little kid, you know, growing up, I remember, you know, I used to be around, my grandmother was one of 13 children and I was around a lot of elderly people. Uh, and they were all at that point, they were legitimately elderly, you know, uh, 60s to 80s you know, 60s to 90s, you know, people of all these different ranges. And they're all just like nervous, you know, nervous about everything all the time. I guarantee you those same women uh, that were, you know, um, very hearty, very, uh, you know, sort of uh, tough, robust, northern Minnesota, iron range women, they weren't like that when they were younger, right? You know, so what happens, uh, what happens that makes that, that transition? 
Uh, same thing with, you know, you see the same thing in, uh, you know, elderly men too. They become sort of nervous. Uh, why do they become more nervous the older they get? Well, those hormones disappear and now they don't have the, the capacity or the threshold or the bandwidth or whatever analogy you want to use because those hormones are just gone. Do you think for men there's menopause or low T anger at wives? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, you mean is like a keyword, right? Yeah, on that jewel. I need jewel? to look that up. Yeah, I haven't uh, heard it that way. But. I'm sure. I'm sure there probably is, but grumpy, uh, grumpy. But see, there's no, there's no sympathy for that, right? No, no one has no, any like sympathy said, no, for that. No excuses. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but the hormones do have a powerful uh, impact on pretty much everything in our in our system. Uh, men are giant babies, anyways, <laughs> right? You know, so uh, no, there there'd be no sympathy because your wife is mad at you. Everybody like, well, what'd you do then? Right. You know, what did you do? How did you create that? Or what, you know, what dumb thing did you do this time, you know, that made her mad at you? And that's honestly, I'm, you know, I know that I, you know, drive you crazy half the time. Uh, oh, you yeah. don't. Yeah. I'm sure it's the other way around. Oh, uh, well, you know, that's just what, uh, you know, that's sort of like the, uh, you know, the, 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 the part of being married when you cohabitate with someone, anyone, uh, there is just going to be little things, the, and now this is what we see from a professional standpoint, right? Those little idiosyncrasies, the things, this is when, you know, a woman is going into perimenopause, right? So she just turned 42, maybe 43, 44. And, you know, again, very busy, a lot of things going on. And all of a sudden now the little things, those little, little uh, idiosyncrasies that her husband has now drives her absolutely crazy, right? How many times a week do you hear about that? That is classic perimenopause. I mean, they, they feel bad about it, may not act on it, but it's like even inanimate objects are kind of annoying. You know, the pen ran out of ink or I forgot to buy paper towels. You know, it's like you get annoyed at little things, but that's a whole other um, hormonal profile that's different from menopause. <laughs> so uh, I have to, I have to laugh. Uh, so your sister, uh, she works uh, in a, she's like an email marketing manager or something like that. So she works in email and we, on our new website, we set up an autoresponder. So you put in your email and um, please, uh, there was a, please. a free video course in. there for you. Uh, feel free to opt in uh, progresshealth.com. Uh, and uh, you put in your email, you get an autoresponder, and the the first, I think it's either the first or second email that we set up, uh, Michelle, uh, which is actually the the lead, you know, profile in your book, the per perimenopause plan. Perimenopause. Uh, Perimenopausal Michelle. Yeah, so she's in the little video series, and then the autoresponder is a follow-up to the video series. And the first email, Michelle, and the the subject line as it comes into your inbox is uh, uh, Michelle's in perimenopause and she's pissed. Right. Just classic. But, you, but your sister, your sister just sort of tested how we asked her to do that. She signed up for it and she sent you an email, you know, a response, a text laughing because it says that Michelle's pissed because she's in perimenopause. <laughs> uh, but that's really true though. I, you know, talk to women all the time and they're just like, you know, it's almost like they got this inner angst. Like they're just, uh, you know, they're like, they're just not angry per se, but things just make them angry in a, in a, in a split second, you know, just annoyed, you know, yeah. patience is short. Stress threshold is a little shorter and things just get annoying. Yeah. But they never, but even six months or a year before that, they weren't that way. Right. It's just almost like literally overnight. And all of a sudden now these little things start to bother them. What do you think is actually going on there? Why do you think that happened? Well, I think that's, you know, when perimenopause, you're still having a period, you're still making a pretty good stable amount of estrogen might be a little bit less, but 
pretty, pretty good there. And it's just that drop in progesterone, which we said earlier, progesterone is supposed to be relaxing. It has an effect on the GABA and the GABA receptors, and it makes us feel happy. It actually is supposed to reduce down cortisol, which, you know, is great for our waistline, but great for our mood, great for our thinking. It's really good for sleeping. So you got this perimenopause, and I've been there too, you know, a perimenopausal female, she's waking up in the middle of the night several, either several times, or she's up for an hour, half to two hours. So you're not well rested the next day. Your progesterone's low. So you're kind of annoyed at things that normally you wouldn't be annoyed at, or you'd give a little bit more um, leeway to. And of course, because we're around our families and our loved ones, and we feel way more comfortable with them, we end up snapping and snarky and crabby and mean to them, but maybe not so much to people that we have to, you know, have that polite society with. So, yeah. well, it's always, it's always the people that are in the immediate family, right? It's always the husbands, the kids, um, not even necessarily coworkers too much. People I think are able to you know, hold it together, but it's, I've had patients that haven't, yeah, <laughs> well, people cry. Yeah, well, yeah. Or, you know, the, 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 uh, you know, the person at the store or, you know, you know, so you're right. There's, you know, situation where it happens, but most of it, at least from what I hear, it's usually the the ones that are within the household. Yeah, that it's not a bad thing. I mean, we're all pretty civilized. It's just, I think people like to know like, oh, I'm feeling a little salty or a little snarky because, you know, the hormones, no excuse, right? No, no excuse, nothing bad's going on, but it's good to know, you know, and, and in some ways, even kind of like what we're doing is we're kind of making light. It's natural. It's human. We're all human. It's okay. <laughs> Well, you say that because we're recording. No, but it's true, right? I don't want it to use an excuse. You know, Valerie's feeling a real crank because of her hormones. I think that's... Well, I would never do that. Because <laughs> for one, you're not. Uh, and I think that's sort of unfair of men to just mm -hmm. blame it on the wives' hormones. That's a little ridiculous. No, no. But we can say in terms of, you know, like our patients, hey, I want to feel better. I want to sleep better. I want to, you know, feel like my skin and hair and waistline are like they used to be, you know, a lot of a lot of fun things you can do with hormones. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, well, I think we beat this one to death. Uh, but you know, you know, uh, a lot of good little segues mm -hmm. and uh, you know, uh, diverging from the question. But uh, you know, Kathy's there's just a little bit of more information that would have been really helpful there. But uh, you know, there are some ways to do that. I think progesterone is probably still an option. Uh, you know, now uh, one thing we didn't touch on. I just one one last question that kind of popped in my mind. Um, you said 100 milligrams is usually kind of a standard. Would you ever go down, consider going down to 75 or 50 and maybe building, like titrating up to, you know, to see if they can uh, start with a lower amount and then going up? I've done that before. You know, I have done that before, but you got to, it's one of those things that eventually they do come up because if you leave, if you left it at 50 or 75, that lining, depending on the person, of course, and the dosage. Yeah, it's going to, it's, it's going to get you at some point that you have to go up have to try to get them to have a bleed or even, you know, I've had patients where they had to have DNCs or ablations, you know, that kind of thing. But really, I mean, you could, when you're working with someone that may be really sensitive and you want to, you know, don't jump into the deep end is weighed in is maybe, like you said, start lower, but always work yourself up and then maybe, you know, watch for spotting. And um, so you could, like I said, that's why it's really important to work with your provider, not just, oh, I see them, you know, once a year and, you know, I, and I've been bleeding for eight months until my next appointment. It's, you know, it needs to have that communication or in some respects, a relationship with all my patients. I have, you know, a relationship with them. I, I know them as, you know, when they say their names, I know exactly who they are. Not like, oh, I have to look at the chart to figure out who they well, are. Well, you know, but see, but see, I don't know. You know their names, you know their kids, you know where they go to college, you, you know, 
you know everything about them. I like that stuff too. Yeah, well, I do too. Yeah, yeah, I do too. Yeah, I think that's great. I think that does uh, that that the art of medicine. I think that is. Uh, that has kind of been lost a little bit. Now people are just a, a, a number uh, and some lab values, and that's about it. You know, that's uh, that's unfortunate. I don't think that in 2023 that medicine has evolved in a, in a particular way that I think is great. Um, but I uh, there's another doctor online that I pay attention to. He talks about uh, medicine 2.0 versus 3.0. You and I practice 3.0. Uh, now his approach is more uh, pr- about prevention and longevity, um, I still think that what we're doing is actually doing exactly the same thing. We're helping people feel better now, but we're also, uh, and he also talks about uh, health span and lifespan. Um, and I don't know, this would be an interesting survey to do. Like if we took all of our patients, you know, however many there are, uh, and asked them, um, is it more important for you to live longer um, just the number, so your your lifespan or your health span, like which one is more important to you? Living as long as you possibly can, no matter what, because you're trying to get to 100 years old or you know whatever the number is. Or um, if you knew you're gonna not make it that long, but had a better quality of life up until the end, which one do you think people would choose? Oh gosh, I know what you think. In you know maybe real, I don't know. Like I had, ha- I would have a hard time choosing that for myself. Oh, it would be a, oh, it's, like that it, is a, that like in theory you think, oh yeah, have the, have the best life you can. And when you go, you go. But, and, but then when you start to think about reality, like I don't want to leave my family. I don't want to make them sad. I have responsibilities that I take care of. I don't want to leave that till the, you know, earlier in life, or I just don't want to leave. I'd rather be a, a blob and be able to at least see all the people I love. I don't know. There's all, there's so many nuances to that. That's a really tough question to ask. Yeah. Right. Well, <laughs> I, and, and, and I don't know. Yeah. We can maybe talk about that on another one, but just these concepts of health span and lifespan. Like I said, when I was growing up in, uh, you know, Minnesota, uh, with all my, um, grandmothers and, you know, grandmother and her, you know, her sisters, um, there were, you know, a lot of them had chronic disease. A lot of them had problems for years and years and years. A lot of them were not very mobile. They used canes and walkers and, and those same, this is, this is really my point. So from when I was a kid, um, growing up in the seventies and eighties and noticing all that now here we are, um, uh, dealing with women that are in the same age range and it is completely night and day compared women compared to now women now are a complete rock stars now i mean there are amazing uh, of what we have done literally in one generation from when i grew up until now um, of how much different and how much better some uh, most of our patients anyways um, their lifespan or their health spans versus what it was when we were children oh yeah they're Night in their 60s difference. doing crossfit i mean they're going on cruises they're exercising they have trainers it's, yeah, it's amazing. You know, even me just turning 50, I feel fantastic. It's not, I could you know, never have my p- grandmother at 50, she had so many problems. Yeah, I could never have pictured Auntie Fanny and Auntie Vivi doing CrossFit, right? <laughs> I mean, it just was never going to happen. I mean, it's just not possible. But here we are fast forwarding, you know, 20, 30 years. And, uh, you know, so that part, uh, I think we're, uh, a purposely, without even really realizing it, purposely contributing to that, uh, where we're increasing people's health span. And I think that's the part that the hormones play. I think the yeah. hormones play a huge role in that. It, I mean, really, what is it? Uh, we decline because there's a lack of hormone, or do we? Uh, um, or is it the other way around? I mean, I don't even know the chicken and the egg. Yeah, yeah. Which one's first? Mm-hmm. Uh, 
as we get older, we become more tired. So we become more sedentary. Now for women, I think it's really unfair though, because for a woman, those hormones just disappear, right? So for a woman, there's this very stark difference between being a menstruating age female and a non-menstruating age female. If you look at all the data, um, every age-related problem happens after menopause, almost every one of them, right? So um, that's why these hormones, I think, really do. And uh, lately, I don't, I know you pay attention to news things just like I do. Over the last few months, there's been quite a few positive uh, um, studies that have come out, articles relating to, you know, es- uh, hormone replacement and uh, dementia, right? Mm-hmm. Preventing dementia, uh, maintaining your faculties. That's, uh, I mean, I think that's uh, one of the main things people are worried about is, you know, losing their, their brain function, right? I mean, that'd be terrifying. Uh, you know, um, I know everyone that they don't want anything else. They just want to be able to maintain their mind and, and their their cognitive abilities for as long as possible. Uh, I think the hormones play a role in that. I think your activity plays a role in that. Your mm-hmm. stress, your sleep, you know, all the things that we, you know, you know, talk about on this podcast and try to help people with, I think, you know, kind of um, push people in those directions for, you know, in the right ways. And you're right. Not just the bioidentical hormone, you know, we talk about bioidentical hormone replacement. Sure, these taking, replacing your hormones is great, but there's so many other lifestyle things, like you said, and nutritional and supplemental things you can do to help work on the cortisol, work on your adrenal hormones, work on your thyroid hormones. They all interplay. So, um, you know, I do, do have patients that are like, here, give me hormones. And then I'm going to you know lose 20 pounds and, you know, not have to do anything. No, it's kind of like potential energy. You get this, you know, you get this potential energy, you feel good, then you go do things that make you feel even better. Yeah, you have to do something with it, you know. And now, granted, that's, uh, I think a lot of them do, right? But what I was saying earlier, the comparison from when you and I were children till now, a lot of them take advantage of it, whether they realize they're doing that or not, or maybe the hormones just propel them which I think is what happens in a lot of cases. They just have the the desire, the energy, the whatever, the you know, the, to and the to, muscle mass. I mean. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've, I, I tell every patient the number one factor for aging is sarcopenia, which is basically muscle loss. Uh, so everything, especially for a woman in menopause, one of their main fitness uh, strategies should be to either maintain or build muscle. Uh, that's we've talked about that many times in the past. We're going to continue to keep talking about that because I think it's a message that sort of uh, that sort of gets distorted or kind of forgotten about, right? It's always about weight loss and weight and the scale and whatever. But you know, in uh, in some ways, that process actually breaks down muscle tissue um, as opposed. You want if you're in your fifties and you're losing muscle mass, you're never going to get it back no. unless you're specifically trying to build it back. Uh, and if it was that easy to build muscle, every every dad bod would be like <laughs> cut and jacked. If it was that easy to build be muscle. No dad bod. Board. There would be no but there'd be no there'd be every man would be walking around with like no shirts on and like big <laughs> that sounds kind of nice. <laughs> well only if they you know could actually build muscle like they're supposed to, right? But men have you know proportionally more testosterone if they can do it women are going to have that much of a harder time doing it i do think you're right like what is it strong as a new sexy or strong as a new skinny it's there's a lot of truth to that yeah i think there is yeah yeah for sure uh any uh, uh we've been kind of droning on so hopefully this uh you know whatever but um like i said you know really fun things to talk about thank you kathy for all the you know for your questions so we could have all this fodder to talk about <laughs> yeah yeah uh so any final comments or we uh we wrap this one up we're good Okay, until next time, I'm Dr. Mackey. I'm Dr. Davidson. Take care, bye-bye. 
you for listening to the Progress Your Health podcast. If you like what you've heard on this podcast, please give us a positive review on iTunes. This allows us to spread our message, grow our audience, and help more people around the world. For more information, visit our website at progressyourhealth.com.